It's Friday, August 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Biden administration is still trying to contain all of the fallout from the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. The most pressing issue right now is the continued evacuation of Americans and Afghan allies. But there are several other storylines in this wide-ranging event. The Afghanistan war still remains unpopular with the American people. But why didn't the administration act on the calls for evacuations from diplomats earlier? And is it possible at all to trust the Taliban's promises? Retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Myers, former intelligence officer and author of American to the Corps, a Marine Corps intelligence officer's incredible journey, joins us to break it all down. Next, governors in Florida, Missouri, and Texas have begun pushing expensive COVID antibody treatments instead of masks and vaccines. States are setting up and staffing infusion centers with the hope of keeping people out of hospitals. Florida's Surgeon General even issued a ruling for anyone to be able to take Regeneron's monoclonal antibody treatment without a doctor prescription. Dan Goldberg, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for the push for COVID cocktails over masks. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There is no good time to leave Afghanistan. 15 years ago would have been a problem, 15 years from now. The basic choice is, am I going to send your sons and your daughters to war in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, in perpetuity? Joining us now is retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Myers. Jonathan, he's uh, served as an intelligence officer with the U.S. Marine Corps for 28 years. He participated in in many high-profile national security events. He's also the author of the book, American to the Corps, Iraq, Bosnia, Benghazi, Snowden, a Marine Corps intelligence officer's incredible journey. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. wanted to talk about, obviously, the situation going on in Afghanistan. As an intelligence officer in the, in the U.S. Marine Corps, I wanted to start there. Let's talk about President Biden's decision to leave Afghanistan and the intelligence we were getting. Obviously, you know, a lot of people have been saying, There was a report saying Kabul could fall within 90 days. It happened in about 10 days. But still, President Biden was pretty adamant about leaving. He wanted to focus our efforts in other areas instead of continuing to stay here in this 20-year war that we were there. So what did we see in that intelligence? What went so wrong there? Well, first, just quickly a little background. 28 years as an intel officer, and when I left active duty just over a year ago, I was actually on the joint staff as the director of, for the director of operations, which by relation meant the vice chairman and the chairman as well. So I wouldn't say it was an intelligence failure. If you ask any soldier or Marine who you know, your brother, sister, or a friend, if they would trust their life to the uh, Afghan National Army soldiers, you're going to get pretty much the same answer, which is no. So really... It's a break, or if you ask an intel analyst at pretty much any level what their analysis was of the capabilities or the willingness to fight of the Afghan army, you're going to get a pretty negative analysis as well. So really the breakdown is that as the information goes up the chain from those lower level trainers up through the general officer ranks to the politicians, it gets morphed, it gets tweaked until you have generals being trotted out in front of committees saying that everything's rosy, the Afghan national army is ready to stand on its own when in reality, that may not be the case. Right. And that's what we saw, you know, when the Taliban moving in. I mean, there really wasn't much fighting there. The Afghan forces gave up pretty quickly. What about the pace of them moving in? Why did it happen so fast? Why did it seem like we were caught flat-footed with that? 
Because the security collapsed with a withdrawal that's not phased out and timed and where you telegraph the end date and say, we're going to be out by this time. That gives the Taliban plenty of time and space to plan their operations for targeted for that time period. So they knew there was an end date, which is a critical mistake at any level, tactical level, operational, strategic. They knew what the end game was. So they made their move all around the country. And the the nature of the Taliban being an insurgent force, it's spread throughout the country. It's in every village. They're all over the place, as we experienced through our conduct of combat operations throughout the countryside. So as soon as they saw that end date, they were able to start, start moving. And with the immediate withdrawal of the forces, there was really nothing there to stop them. And the, the Afghan National Army relies heavily on support from the U.S. military, both soldiers on the ground, but more importantly, air power. We basically taught the Afghans to fight like we do which you tend to do, and, and we rely heavily on air power. So with their air support pulled, it just collapsed. Yeah. Let's talk about the, obviously, the biggest mess of all of this is the evacuations of Americans and Afghans that were uh, working with us there. The pullout of Afghanistan seems to be pretty popular still. According to polls, I think the Associated Press just had a poll saying that the majority of people still think it was, you know, that being in Afghanistan wasn't worth it. And they approve of Biden's management of international affairs and national security. But obviously the biggest bungle with all of this was not having that plan to evacuate people. Uh, And we saw all those dramatic scenes, obviously, earlier in the week. What's next for all that? The State Department is sending more people to process visas, but this really seems like the central part of it right now. The, The president said we'll stay past August 31st, the pullout date, if we need to, to keep evacuating people. I think all sides of the political spectrum agree that we should not be in Afghanistan anymore. It's been 20 years. So the real problem comes down to the execution. President Biden didn't really have an evacuation plan. It's more a withdrawal plan. So when President Trump left, he indicates that he had a withdrawal plan with phases and stages that can be yanked at any time if the, if the Taliban's not meeting metrics or not basically doing what we're asking them to do. I think the real gist of it comes down to the impression is that President Biden just forewent that plan, like no longer had a phased withdrawal plan and just jumped right to the let's pull everybody out, which is what caused the chaos. You need to distinguish between withdrawal plan and evacuation. Evacuation plan, that is managed by the State Department through a document called the F-77, which is supposed to possess the locations and names and data of all the American citizens in the country, as well as all the tactical data that the Marines need or the Army needs to come in and conduct the rescue, including specifics of the building and where to land helicopters, just everything. So what this really indicates is a total breakdown in the State Department's F-77 and their evacuation planning, because if the State Department spokesman is going on TV and saying that they don't know how many citizens there are or where they are, then that immediately tells you that the F-77 wasn't populated with the data it needed to be, and therefore an evacuation couldn't be conducted. Yeah, and we're seeing reports of checkpoints by the Taliban and all, you know, not letting people get to the airport. The president has remained steadfast in his decision to pull out and everything. But, you know, in a recent interview, he said that getting out of there with no chaos, you know, couldn't have been done that way. But to your point, basically, the State Department had prepared more for this. Maybe the chaos could have been limited a a little bit more, right? It was always going to be a a problem getting out of there when our presence had been there for so long. The State Department F-77 
and the evacuation plan includes multiple assembly areas and points of extraction with a central location, such as the major airport or whatever is selected for the plan. So the fact that everything collapsed and all that's left to us is the Kabul airport, which is now encircled by the ring of death, they're calling it, demonstrates that there was no plan executed. If there had been a plan executed, you need multiple points. And the way forward to conduct this in a reasonable manner with limited risk to life and limb of all those American citizens is to have more than just the Kabul airport. In fact, I spent the last two hours, this is really shows the sad state of affairs that, uh, that a retired Marine living in Germany is trying to coordinate the extraction of interpreters and families with a informal Marine network. I mean, that really should not be the case. And that's what myself and my Marine compadres have been working on for the last couple of hours. So the situation outside the wire there at the airport is, from my sources on the ground, is, is not pretty. And the Taliban is, is basically deciding who will evacuate because they have the power over who enters the area and who doesn't enter the area. That leads right into my next question. What happens after all this initial shock wears off? What happens after we've evacuated as many Americans and Afghans out of there what happens when the Taliban is just firmly inset there now? We heard from some of their spokespeople earlier in the week promising peace, uh, you know, saying, you know, the war is over, offering amnesty to people, basically saying that we're different. They even said, made some overtures for women, saying we want them to still go to school and things like that. But I think uh, another spokesperson even said that they would probably rule with Sharia law and all that. The question I, I hear all the time is, can we trust the Taliban? I think the answer is pretty clear. No, but... How do we work with them going forward? How does that, what does that look like? It will look about the same as it did from 1996 to 2001. The Taliban is the Taliban. They haven't changed their stripes. They didn't fight for 20 years and lose 200,000, 100,000, whatever the number is, fighters, and go through all of that pain and effort so that they could just come down to Kabul and, and forget about all those ideas they had. I mean, that's a farce to even consider that as an option. This collapse, this immediate withdrawal, the strategy that was used for this, I'm not even going to get into the politics of it, but the strategy that was used for it is no doubt the worst foreign policy move that's been made since Vietnam, if it's not worse than Vietnam. And the reason is we had, for the most part, throttled the Islamic radical terrorism movements. We had al-Qaeda basically vanquished to the point where they now had to try to set up operations in Africa. In fact, Africa became the leading spot for al-Qaeda and ISIS attacks a year and a half ago, I believe it was. ISIS was vanquished, and they also were trying to set up in Africa. Losing Afghanistan, basically giving it back to the Taliban 20 years later, we're restarting right where we left off. And all of those terror groups now have a base of operations, and they will all consolidate there. And, oh, by the way, we equipped the Afghan National Army to be one of the most well-equipped forces in the region. And by default, the Taliban is now one of the most well-equipped forces in that entire region. Yeah, I think the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, earlier in the week said something like, well, we don't know exactly how many weapons they have there and all. But as you mentioned, the, the Afghan forces pretty much got up and left. So it makes sense that they have everything. Everything that the Afghans had is now in the control of the Taliban. My answer to that when people ask me how many weapons, is it really relevant? The answer is they have all of them. There's not a single weapon in the country that they don't now have. If we brought it there and we gave it to the Afghans, then they have it. Now, the way we, I did this training all over Africa as well, and the way we usually train other nations is we train them on their organic weapons they already have. 
and then we supply them with what they need to try and improve. But across the board, the forces that really get the high-grade equipment are the special forces. And there, there have been some reports that a lot of those guys have gone out into the countryside and taken their weapons with them. But it's so chaotic right now, it's hard to tell exactly what's going on. But yeah. the general answer is they have all of them. Retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Myers, an author of American to the Corps, a Marine Corps intelligence officer's incredible journey. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. Starting today and for seven days a week from nine to five here at CB Smith, we'll be having uh, monoclonal antibody treatments. We can do over 300 individual treatments a day. Joining us now is Dan Goldberg, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk about an interesting development. We're seeing the governors of Florida, Missouri, Texas, promising antibody treatments for infected people when they uh, get COVID-19. I think they're putting millions of dollars into the implementation for all of this. And obviously, you know, we've been having this ongoing conversation about vaccines, how they are effective. They do prevent severe hospitalization and illness and death even. But still, some of the Republican governors are, are pushing for these other treatments. Dan, what do we make of all this? I think it's really interesting to note that some of the governors who have been most against mitigation measures like masks or social distancing are now the ones who are most eager to tout the advantages of these antibody treatments. And while, of course, we want everybody who gets sick to be treated, there is an element of, a, you know, the uh, expression turned on its head, a pound of cure seems to be better than an ounce of prevention in this case. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing because, you know, these treatments aren't cheap and we're trying to keep people out of hospital and uh, medical settings to prevent the system from getting overburdened. But Regeneron is one of these and, uh, mon- monoclonal antibody treatments that, uh, you know, these things need to be administered through IV by professionals, uh, you know, so it, it kind of complicates things, it seems like, more than more than it would just to go get your vaccine. Right. It certainly is more complicated. It, it, the, the treatment was bought by the federal government, so it's free to the patient. But of course, it is more expensive. Somebody paid for it down the line. And it is more of a hassle. And once you get sick or infected with COVID, you're more likely to spread it to somebody else. So obviously, in public health and any kind of scenario, you want to prevent getting sick in the first place. What's interesting about what has happened is the White House, the Biden administration had been pushing these antibody treatments, reminding states like Arkansas and Missouri, where COVID was really raging, to sort of tout these treatments because the theory is, listen, if you get it, we don't want you to go to the hospital. And these treatments are a way to keep people with mild symptoms from developing worsening symptoms. The problem was it was never meant to be a either or with things like masks or certainly not the vaccines. And so on the one hand, you have Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida touting these monoclonal antibodies while at the same time fighting with school districts who are trying to mandate masks to stop the spread of the virus in the first place. On top of all that, I don't want to shy anybody away from receiving these treatments because they've been shown to work. And and if you're severely ill, I mean, you, you want something like this. But people talk about the vaccines and how they're not fully authorized. Regeneron, one of the main ones, right, is still under emergency use authorization and still hasn't been fully approved by the FDA. So those are all other things to consider for people that are going to get these type of treatments. 
The bottom line is this. One of the big problems we've had from the beginning of COVID is that many people in this country don't take it seriously. Either they believe it's a hoax outright or that the consequences of COVID are not that serious. How many times have you heard people say, well, it's just like the flu or it's no worse than the common cold. And one of the concerns, just from a messaging point, is that if you tout a treatment like this, and we want people to get it, but the concern is, see, it's nothing more than a cold. You can get sick, you get a little medicine, you'll be better. Without really people understanding that it is an infusion center often, you're going to be at, you know, having a needle in your arm for two hours or an hour with follow-up care afterward. And not only is the treatment complicated, as you said, but you may have spread it to somebody who gets very sick or possibly dies. And so that is really, you know, anything that sort of confirms people's beliefs that this isn't such a big deal, so why should I bother getting vaccinated, is something that the White House is very concerned with. So what are what specific action are we seeing in these various states? Because I'm seeing Florida Surgeon General kind of issued a blanket prescription, basically saying you can receive these treatments without a doctor's prescription. And, and then, as you mentioned, the, these infusion centers. So states are having to set up and staff them so that people can get the treatments. Right. And Mississippi, I should say, did the same thing. Also gave a standing order so that you can receive it without a prescription. And the cake in some of these states is already baked, right? I mean, if people should go get vaccinated in Mississippi, but the truth is the vaccines take weeks before they take effect. So what Mississippi and uh, Louisiana and Arkansas and Missouri are all trying to do right now is what can we do immediately to stem the tide? I think where public health officials are sort of smacking their palms against their heads is, well, why don't you promote masks? Why don't you tell people that going to the state fair may not be a good idea right now, especially if COVID is raging in that county? And so it's not an either or so much as a both and. And I think that in many of these southern states is what you aren't seeing. One of the most recent recipients of uh, this type of treatment, these antibody treatments, was Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who just tested positive. And uh, he was he had his vaccination, to my knowledge, as well. Yes, he did. Uh, he got vaccinated on television back months ago. I, I can't remember when. And it is important, you know, one of the points that Governor DeSantis in Florida makes is that these treatments are for people who have been vaccinated, too. Uh, the vaccines, as we know, are not perfect or they don't work 100 percent of the time. Governor Abbott has some pre-existing health conditions that make him particularly susceptible to COVID or severe effects from COVID, I should say. And so it's good that somebody who might be in a situation like Abbott where they've been vaccinated, get infected with COVID anyway, have the ability to take advantage of this. Again, where the public health officials are going to smack their, their palms against their head is saying that Greg Abbott was at large outdoor rallies and events, actually indoor rallies uh, and events, where he put himself, even though he was vaccinated, he put himself at additional risk because there wasn't a lot of mask wearing, there wasn't a lot of social distancing. So could the governor of Texas possibly have done more to help him prevent getting infected in the first place? Probably. Is it a good thing that he has the access to these treatments? Absolutely. But again, it's not, it shouldn't be either or. They could have been a way to do both. Dan Goldberg, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.